The following message was recorded at Shades Valley Community Church in Homewood, Alabama. For more information and resources from Shades Valley, please visit us at shadesvalley.org. So I do invite you to open your Bibles to Philippians 2 if you haven't done so already. The last time that I was with you, we were in verses 12 and 13 alone, and what we saw there was the Apostle Paul give the Philippians a very general command. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Very general, broad command, work out your salvation, believing that it is God empowering you to do so. And in response to that, I'm like, great, awesome, that's good stuff. But that's really broad, Paul. Like, I get what you mean in general, but could you be a little bit more specific? Uh, last Saturday evening, as Holly and I walked into the emergency room and the, the receptionist at the desk looked at my bloody face, she said, what happened? And I, completely numb to all pain by that point in time, proudly declared, I got hit in the face. <laughs> and she just kind of looked at me like a little confused, like with this look that's like, could you be more specific? And I was like, oh, uh, yeah, I got, I got hit uh, right here. And Holly, who is much better at details, clarified for her that I was in a car accident. I had not been assaulted in like a bar fight. But Holly answered that cry of, could you be more specific? And here we are at the end of Philippians 2.13. And what I feel like we're left with here is that same kind of confused look and asking Paul the same question. Paul, could you be more specific? Could you be more specific about what working out your salvation by God's power looks like? Philippi has got to be left asking this question. I mean, they are, they are living in, in, in a day in which they are experiencing day in and day out opposition from the Roman culture that surrounds them. Remember that we have seen this time and time again as we've been walking through this letter that the, the Philippians experience daily a pressure to conform to Rome's cultural norms, especially with regard to religion and morality. Experience a pressure. And in the midst of that opposition, they've got to be asking Paul, what does it specifically look like for us to work out our salvation by God's power and shades? We've got to be asking the same question, what does it look like specifically for us? Because our situation is not that different from Philippi's over and over again as we've walked through this letter we have seen that we've seen parallels between what Philippi is facing and what we are facing we we live in a culture that very much mirrors the religious pluralism and the moral decay of Roman society and we do we not daily feel the pressure to conform to the cultural norms that surround us especially with regards to religion and morality. I mean, what does it look like specifically for us to work out our salvation by God's power in the midst of our culture, in the midst of our generation? This is precisely what Paul aims to answer in Philippians 2, verses 14 through 18. Here, Philippi, here's what it specifically looks like for you to work out your salvation. And Shades, this is not just for the Philippians and Philippi, but this is for Shades and Shades Valley. I 
think that as we walk through this, we are going to clearly see that these are still God's instructions for his church to work out their salvation in the world. So, we've asked Paul to be more specific, and he answers by giving us the specifics of the what, the why, and the how. Working out your salvation in your cultural context, here's what that specifically looks like. Here's, here's why you are to do that, and here's specifically how you are to go about doing that. So let's take these things one at a time. Let's start with the specifics of the what. What does Paul specifically say it looks like to work out our salvation in our current culture? He answers that question in the first verse of our passage, Philippians 2, verse 14. He says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. We wanted specifics. It doesn't get much more specific than this. Like, Paul hones in on grumbling and disputing. Grumbling. Gagosmon. It's, it's a Greek term that literally means to utter in a low tone of voice. Or, or behind the scenes talk. Like, it's what you do behind someone's back. You complain. You, you grumble. Disputing, on the other hand, dialogismos, that's, that's a Greek term that in this particular context indicates arguing, heated de debate. This is not civil debate or civil discussion. Paul's not saying we should never discuss or disagree at all. No, this is, this is a a gloves are off kind of speech. This is punching each other in the face with words. Grumbling and disputing. What, why does Paul specifically go after these two things in order to tell the Philippians what working out their salvation looks like? like, like isn't there so much more that he could talk about, and, and so many other things that would seem like they are of, of such a higher priority. Why is this first on the, on the table? I mean, in answer to that question, sure, there's, there's, there's a lot of other things that Paul could talk about here. I mean, we're talking about working out your salvation into every single area of your life. I mean, there's many things he could talk about, but Paul's aim right here is not to speak exhaustively with these instructions. His aim is to speak specifically and immediately. And specifically, this is what the Philippians are dealing with. And so he immediately aims at that for them to be able to immediately address that. This is where you need to right now immediately begin specifically working out your salvation by God's power with this grumbling and disputing. This shouldn't surprise us because as we've gone through this letter, we've seen time and time again that although the Philippians are a pretty healthy church, if they struggle in any one area, it's with unity. Like already through a chapter and a half, we're, almost, we're about at the halfway point of the letter, and already Paul has made a call, a plea for unity. He's given them instructions about how to be unified. He's held up Christ himself as an example of what such unity looks like. I mean, unity is their struggle, and now we get more details about it. Specifically, it's because they are grumbling and disputing, and it seemingly is about everything. It's at least infecting and affecting everything. That's why Paul says, do all things, all things. 
without grumbling behind one another's backs or disputing to one another's faces. This is what it specifically and immediately looks like for the Philippians to work out their salvation by God's power. This is what they need to do. But why? What? Why? This is precisely where Paul goes next in verse 15. He's given us the what. What does it look like for you to start working out your salvation? Fear and trip? Stop grumbling and disputing. Why? He begins to unpack that for us in verse 15. Let's, let's reread beginning at the beginning of, of uh, verse 14, and we'll keep going. Paul says, do all things without grumbling or disputing so that, he knows, means in order that. Here's the reason. Here's the why. Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights or more literally stars in the world. Paul's words right here are dripping with Old Testament references. The primary one comes from Deuteronomy chapter 32. He's echoing the words of Moses there. This is what Moses says in Deuteronomy 32, 5. See if you can hear the parallels. Moses says, They have dealt corruptly with the Lord. They are no longer his children. Paul says, I want you to be innocent, blameless children of God. Moses is saying, They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. It's like a mirror opposite, right? Paul says, I want, I want you to be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. If we go back to the Deuteronomy passage to see what's going on there exactly and maybe why Paul is echoing this, in Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses is speaking these words that we just read about the generation of people that God used him to lead out of slavery in Egypt. God raised up Moses to lead the people of God out of slavery in the land of Egypt and to take them through the wilderness to a land that God had promised to them where they were supposed to dwell as a light among the nations. They were to shine like stars. That was the mission of the people of God as described in Isaiah 49. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 3 describes it as them shining like stars. That's what they're supposed to do. But Moses says that that generation did not shine outward. No, they were blemished, darkened. They weren't shining at all. They were blemished because they weren't turned outward. They were turned inward. They were crooked and twisted. When, when this passage in Deuteronomy got translated into Greek, the Greek word used there for crooked is the Greek word scolios. It's where we get our English word, scoliosis, which is what I've got in my spine up here. It means it's crooked, it's twisted, it's not facing the way it's supposed to, it's turned in on itself. Moses says that this was a crooked and twisted generation turned in on themselves. All you have to do in order to see that is listen to their grumbling and disputing. 
It's all over the place. Read the narrative of them wandering through the wilderness, through Exodus and Numbers. They grumble and dispute, grumble and dispute. Easy passage to pull from just to show you an example is Exodus 16, verses 2 and 3. The people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. He's talking, complaining. Low tone of voice, utterances behind their back, but it doesn't stay there. They begin to dispute. They grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness, and the people of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They grumble and dispute, and this becomes their pattern. Read Exodus 17. Read Numbers 14. Grumble, dispute, grumble, dispute, because they are crooked and twisted, turned in on themselves, incapable of shining outward to the nations. They don't shine at all. They're blemished. And in Philippians 2, Paul recalls all of that to say to Philippi and to us, Shades, don't repeat the mistake of the desert generation. Don't make the same mistake. They grumbled. And they complained because they wanted to go back to Egypt where, where things were easier than in the wilderness. They're looking at that through a little bit of rose-colored lenses right there. Back in Egypt when we ate to the... Do you not remember slavery and the taskmasters? They wanted to go back to Egypt where things were easier than in the wilderness. And I think that Paul recalls all of this basically saying to Philippi, Philippi, I know things would be easier back in your Egypt, Rome. I know, I know it would be easier to just cave to the surrounding culture, to do things the Roman way when in Rome. Just blend in with the religious pluralism and the moral relativism. Like Paul right here, recalling the desert generation makes me think this is what Philippi's grumbling and disputing was about. I think that it's likely they were grumbling about how hard things were amidst the cultural opposition they were facing and disputing about whether or not they should compromise and comply. Shades, is this not the primary source of grumbling and disputing still amongst Christians in our context? Grumbling about the opposition we face with regards to our theological and ethical convictions? Grumbling's pining for the way it used to be, a much better day? Our churches not being completely torn asunder in disputes about whether or not to compromise and comply with the culture? think this is what the Philippians are grumbling and disputing about precisely because Paul is concerned about them blending in with the culture. I think they're disputing about should we compromise, should we comply, because that's Paul's concern, that they're going to be blemished and they're going to blend in. Paul calls the culture around them crooked and twisted. Uses the same Greek word right here, skolios. They're, they're crooked, twisted, turned in on themselves. Paul is saying, Philippi, this Roman generation around you, it's crooked, twisted, turned in on themselves. People are all about their own glory. And if you, Philippi, if you become a people characterized by grumbling and disputing, you will blend right in with them. 
you'll be just like the desert generation, crooked and twisted too. And I don't want that for, for you. I don't, I don't want you to be blemished, but I want you to be blameless. I don't want you to be crooked and twisted, curved in on yourself. No, I want you to be shining outward as lights in the sky, stars fulfilling the mission of the people of God. I don't want you to be like the desert generation whom Moses called no longer God's children. I want you to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Shades, this is why. This is why Paul wants us to work out our salvation specifically by not grumbling or disputing because when we grumble and dispute, we do not shine as lights in the world. We blend in with it. I mean, do we not live in a culture characterized by grumbling and disputing? Do you watch the news? Do you scroll through Twitter? Definitely not a place for grumbling. Through Facebook, definitely not a place for disputing. Like we live in a 24-7 grumble dispute sesh. Just all the time. And when we, as the people of God, are characterized by grumbling and disputing, we blend right in. Because we are just as crooked, twisted, and curved in on ourselves as the next person. But when, when we work out our salvation by doing all things without grumbling, without disputing, then we shine. We shine as blameless and innocent children of God. We shine a light on the power of God before the world because working out that kind of salvation can only be done by God's power. You can only live a life of not grumbling and not disputing by the power of God. It's the only way. We are promised that God is at work in us to empower us to work out our salvation. He, he's at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure, for his glory. This is why we work out our salvation by doing all things without grumbling or disputing so that we may shine a light on the glory of God before the world. We do this for the joy of the world in Jesus. This world is crooked and twisted, turned in on itself, trying to find joy in itself. And no matter where it looks, it has to keep grumbling and disputing because it can't find joy inside of itself. And we get to shine a light on the place where true joy can be found, on Jesus. Why do we work out our salvation in this way? For the joy of the world. But that's not all. We also do it for the joy of one another. Look at verses 16 to 18, Shades. Paul wants the Philippians to shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that, this is more why, so that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul uses the language of sports, 
and of sacrifice right here. He's, he's using that to describe his efforts to teach the Philippians how to work out their salvation by the power of God so that they shine like stars. I'm working for that, Philippi, and here's what it looks like. First, he gives us a sports metaphor. He calls it running a race. He says, I don't want to have run this race in vain. Like on the day when I've reached the finish line and I stand before Christ, Paul says, I want to be able to point at you, Philippi. I want to be able to point at you and say, that's why I ran this race. That's what I labored for. They are my boast and my joy and my crown because they are a people whose joy is in Jesus. Paul is saying that all of his striving, all of his teaching, his preaching, his suffering, it is aimed at the Philippians working out their salvation by God's power so that they shine like stars. Paul says, I'll give my life for that, Philippi. That's what his next metaphor is intended to communicate. His second metaphor is one of sacrifice. He describes a ritualistic drink offering. Um, a drink offering in the temple uh, was, was a, an offering of wine or olive oil that was typically poured out either on top of or beside a sacrifice that was already on the altar. And it, it completed the offering. And Paul describes the Philippians' faith, their joy in Jesus, as being like a sacrifice. And his life being like a drink offering. And if it needs to be poured out in death in order to make sure that that offering is complete, that their faith makes it to the finish line, he says, worth it. Worth it. Paul is saying that even if, even if his, his teaching, his preaching, and all the, even if it cost him his life and he's got to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of their faith, it is worth it if it means the Philippians will find their joy in Christ. Not in themselves, grumbling and disputing, but find their joy in Christ and so shine as lights in the world. Paul says, that's worth it. If it means your joy in Jesus, I'll give my life and I'll give it with joy. That's verse 17. I'm glad and I rejoice with you all. Shades, I get Paul here. I get him. Like, I, I feel this. I long with every ounce of my being for you to know joy in Jesus. That's why I'm running this race. That's why I preach. That's why I teach. That's why I counsel. That's why I visit. That's why I welcome every last one of these stinking gray hairs that pastoring brings. I've been at this for eight years now. That's two presidential terms. You know those before and after pictures of presidents? You can compare my beginning at Shades with eight years in, and it's like the same thing. I'm scared for what the future holds, but I don't have to look at it. You do, so that's no problem. But if it means your joy in Jesus, bring on the gray. And Shades, if it costs me my life, and I mean this, with everything that I have inside of me, if it means being poured out as a drink offering, if last Saturday night in that wreck I had breathed my last breath, I would have gladly exhaled it if it meant your joy in Jesus. I mean that. 
I would gladly give it and rejoice with you all. And if that sounds crazy to you, I declare to you along with Paul the words of verse 18. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, I'm glad to give my life for the glory of Christ. When Christ is glorified, my joy is magnified. Philippi, if Christ is glorified, that should make you rejoice too. Christ glorified should mean your joy magnified. So Paul says, if I can glorify Christ even in my death, I rejoice. And you should rejoice with me because Jesus is being glorified. He's not telling them not to be sorrowful over a situation like that if he should die while he's in prison. But he's telling them the same truth he speaks all over the place in his other letters that we are a people who, though sorrowful, at many times we are always rejoicing. Paul is showing how that is possible. It's because Jesus is our joy. So Paul says, Jesus is glorified, Philippi. I rejoice, and you should likewise, even if it means laying down my life. Rejoice. See, see the overarching picture of what Paul is saying. When Philippi works out their salvation by not grumbling and disputing, all crooked and twisted turn in on themselves, no. They don't grumble and dispute when they're turned outward, shining a light of joy in Jesus into the world. When they do that, it's not just for the joy of the world. It's for the joy of one another. It makes Paul rejoice. It makes them rejoice because Jesus glorified means our joy magnified. Shades, this is why why we work out our salvation by doing all things without grumbling or disputing. Yes, for the joy of the world, but also for the joy of one another. But one question remains. How? I think Paul has shown us what we specifically need to do to work out our salvation. Don't, don't grumble. Don't dispute. He's shown us why. For the joy of the world. For the joy of one another in Jesus. That still leaves us asking, how? This is the third and final specific we need to see this morning. The how. Paul places the how right in the middle of this passage. Like if you're not careful, you'll miss it. This is why we need to read the Bible slowly. I, I, we've actually already read this a couple of times. I don't know if you saw it or not. Let's reread one last time, beginning in verse 14. Watch for the how. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. How are we going to do all things without grumbling or disputing? How are we going to be blameless, innocent children of God without blemish? How are we going to shine as lights in the world? By holding fast to the word of life life. Hold fast. To, to, to hold fast is to like put an iron grip on something. You're grasping onto it with all that you, you've got. It's, it's the way that someone who falls overboard in a, into a stormy sea, it's the way that they cling to a life preserver that's thrown to them. You're holding fast for life which is precisely what Paul is pointing out by telling us, hold fast to the word of life, the word which gives life. This is a synonym for Paul for the gospel. You See, the, the, the problem for Philippi 
was not that they weren't holding fast to a word. They were. They just weren't holding fast to the right word. They were holding fast, clinging to their grumbling and disputing. They held to it, dwelt on it, ruminated on it. That's what the desert generation did. Holding on, holding fast to a word that brings death. Shades, do we do the same? Like, amidst our grumbling and disputing culture, do we join in and cling to only words that bring death? It's, it's 2020, Shades. We are staring down another election year in our country. And I love how uncomfortable everybody just got when I said that. And there are going to be countless opportunities for us to join in grumbling and disputing. Which also means there will be countless opportunities to shine as lights by holding fast to a different word. Not words that bring death, but the word of life, the gospel, which is not a word of panic, it's a word of peace. We're going to have a lot of people panicking around us. We are not a people who panic. We are people who speak a word of peace. Because we know a God who rules over all time, all nations, all kings, all platforms. And we trust him. You've got an opportunity to shine like a light, like stars with a different word, a word of peace. The gospel, it's a word of peace. It's not a word of despair, it's a word of hope. Going to be a lot of people despairing around us. You've got a different word, a word of hope. It's not a word of hate, it's a word of love. Going to be a lot of hate spewed. You've got a different word, a gospel word of peace, of hope, of love. It is the word of joy in Jesus. In a year where people around us are going to seem like it is impossible to have joy, you have an opportunity to shine joy in Jesus like the stars in the sky. Hold fast to the gospel Shades. How? This is what I want to close with. Close with three very practical thoughts for you on how we can hold fast to the gospel. Meet around the word, memorize the word, meditate on the word. I'll give them to you one at a time. First, Hold fast to the word of life by meeting around the word. Hebrews 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold fast. Hmm. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how. How are we going to do that? How to stir up one another to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Holding fast to the Word is something we do together, Shades. This is not a me, Holy Spirit, and my Bible by myself religion. Christianity has never been that. In fact, whenever we try to make it that, it results in heresy and cults. Those are the only options. This is something we do together. We're doing it right now. 
as we gather together. You do it in your community groups. I'm not saying don't read your Bible and study it by yourself. Yes, obviously do that, but you bring what you're reading and studying into conversation with other Christians around you because the Spirit is active and alive, not just in you, but in and through the church. This is something we do together. We're, we're doing it right now. The Philippians did this. When they gathered to hear this letter we've been studying read, they gathered to sit under the word so that it becomes the lens through which they see their world. How can we hold fast to the word of life? Meet around this word. Second, hold fast to the word of life by memorizing the word. We pass this off as something that's for kids. It's not. Memorize the word. Psalm 119 and verse 11. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The psalmist is not talking about memorizing scripture in order to fill up his head. That's why he says, I've stored your word in my heart because I wanted to actually shape what I, I want. I wanted to shape what I do so that I might not sin against you. I wanted to shape my affections and what I love, and, and I wanted to shape my life. He's not just saying, let's hold on to Scripture. The psalmist right here is saying, hold fast to Scripture. He's doing what Paul is telling the Philippians to do. Shades, if you want to hold fast to this word, hold it in your heart so that it shapes your affections, your love, and your life. There are there are countless ways to memorize Scripture. Now, there's even an app for that. There's lots of them. Just go look. Download. It. I challenge you. I challenge you. Go download a Scripture memorization app, and every time you go to open a social media app, first, open your Scripture memory app. Whatever verse you're memorizing, go over it once before you go scroll through Twitter or Facebook or Instagram or TikTok or whatever. It may even change the way you begin to see what you encounter there. If you're a Luddite like myself, then you can do it old-fashioned. Uh, the way I memorize Scripture Shades is I print it on paper and I post it in places where I normally am. Much to the annoyance of my wife, you should see my bathroom mirror. It's just... And whenever I'm around it, I just read it. I don't even try to memorize it. I just read it. And eventually, it's there. And I, I know it. How can we hold fast to the word of life? Memorize the word. Not just for head knowledge sake, but heart knowledge sake. So that it shapes what we love. It shapes our life. Memorize the word. And third, final. Hold fast to the word of life by meditating on the word meditating on the word. Joshua 1 and verse 8. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that, so that it shapes your life, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. To, to meditate on Scripture is, to, is not to clear your head of all thought. No, it's to very much bring things into it. It's, it's to think about Scripture, to dwell on it. It's, it's taking Scripture as if it's a sponge and trying to wring every last drop of life-giving water out of it. This is what Paul's going to instruct us to do in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. He's going to call Philippi and us to meditate on the things of the Lord, to think about them, ruminate on them. The Psalms call us to this practice over and over again. And here's the thing. Like if you're like, ah, I don't know that I can just really get into that. We all do this already. 
We all meditate on things, dwell on them, turn them over and over in our minds. Typically, it's the things we grumble and dispute about. And turn it over every which way. Have the argument 15 times by myself in my head. I am always amazingly good when I do that. My wife loses every argument that happens in my head. Every time. And, and, and not in a bad way. She ends up agreeing with me and saying, That's, I don't know how I didn't see that. It's amazing. I, I got a lot of a confession and apologizing to do to my, with my wife later. But we dwell on things, typically the things we grumble and dispute about. So how, how can we not hold fast to those words of death, but, but instead hold fast to the word of life, meditate on it, dwell on it? There's, there's so many different ways. You can do it through song. In Colossians 3, verse 16, talks about this, says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Yes, through things like teaching, but it goes on to say through song, through hymns and spiritual songs, through singing these truths. Dwell on them, marinate them, and let them soak the way that you think. And I'll give you one really specific, very quickly. In my life, I have found a new app. I'm not always a Luddite. I have found a new app to be really helpful for dwelling on Scripture. The name of the app is Dwell. It's very original. Um, I get no kickbacks from Dwell. I'm not advertising or anything. It is a paid app. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in, in, you know, cahoots. It's basically just an audio Bible, but really amazing. Uh, lots of different settings, customization, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. You can look at it yourself. But I use it at times when my mind would normally dwell on things that, that I grumble and dispute about. In the car, working out. Yes, this is a result of me working out. I use it sometimes when I go to sleep. I, I try to take those times my mind normally dwells on the grumbling and the disputing and, and let it dwell, meditate on the words so that it becomes what shapes my words and my actions. Memorization and meditation go hand in hand. If you, if you memorize, that often feeds right into meditation. The things that you have stored in your heart, you can recall them and dwell on them. How can we hold fast to the word of life? Meet around the word. Memorize the word. Meditate on the word. Shades, do whatever it takes. Like you are clinging to the thing that gives you life. Because you are. It's the word of life. John 6, verse 68, Jesus asks his disciples if they're going to leave, and Peter says, where else will we go? You have the words, the words of eternal life. Let us, let us hold fast to the word of life, to the gospel. Let us hold fast to the gospel, shapes, so that it shapes the way we think, the way we feel, the way we see the world, the way we speak of the world. Let let us hold fast to the gospel until, by God's power, it has put to death all of our grumbling and all of our disputing so that we shine as lights for the joy of the world and the joy of one another in Jesus. Shades, let us hold fast for joy. Amen.